Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, July 14th, 2011. Doing our light edition today. I am out of the studio speaking at a youth conference. I'll be making the conference circuit over the next few days, weeks. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we do the comparative work. Now, one of the things we do on a weekly basis is we have what we call our light edition of Fighting for the Faith. It moves around. It started off as a Friday light, and it just became a light because I... Couldn't keep it on Fridays. Um, you know, I just kind of moved things around. Uh, I was being very postmodern. So today what we're going to be listening to for our light edition, it's a single topic. And uh, what we're going to be listening to is a good sermon. Uh, another sermon from the Pierced for Our Transgressions series from Capitol Hill Baptist Church. And uh, the name of this particular one is Crushed for Our Iniquities. And that's the name of the sermon, Crushed. For Our Iniquities by Dr. Mark Dever. So we'll just dive right into it. And since I'm going to be out of studio, uh, we won't even pause for a break. Uh, you know, in the middle of this thing, we'll just let the whole sermon run and uh, and uh, hope you all enjoy it and are edified. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. So to uh, help us financially, especially during the lean summer months, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and click on one of the friendly yellow buttons to support us financially. We truly do need your help, and thank you for your support. So here we are. Without any further ado, Dr. Mark Dever, uh, a sermon on Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 through 53, verse 12, crushed for our iniquities. A few improbabilities. Improbability number one. A good friend of mine this year gave me as a Christmas gift something he thought I would enjoy. A DVD on Windsor Castle. Not on its architecture or history, but on the living community. The, 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 the small army of, of servants who work there, uh, preparing, taking care of guests and the grounds. And, and he was right, I am enjoying it. And what can I say? I lived in England six and a half years. Improbability number two. I've been watching it while spending time on an elliptical machine each morning. 
Yes, that too is true. Improbability number three. My friend, an adult man, was upset when he found out I'd been watching it without him. Yes, in fact, much to my surprise, Kevin McKay wanted to watch it with me. In this program on Windsor Castle, front and center are the most amazing collection of servants, a small army of them really, about, about 160 who live there on the grounds of the castle. They are splendidly dressed, they are, are treated with the greatest of care and respect, even by the sovereign herself, and really you can tell that the servants expect this. And I have to say, perhaps it's the American in me, or maybe it's my fallen pride, or maybe there's, the two are related, I don't know how satisfying I would find such a, a life of service. This morning, we want to look at a servant, a famous servant, but one quite different than the one that I have described, and considering him might be the key to helping you understand what the whole series of studies that we're engaged in from Christmas to Easter is about, the fact that Jesus Christ died as a penal substitute for us, that is, he was a substitute taking the penalty that you deserve. One popular objection to this idea of substitutionary atonement is that the language today is meaningless. It employs a vocabulary of sin and punishment that we don't use, and it's claimed we don't understand. But friends, there's a difference between an image and the reality that that image represents. And the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ is not merely an image. It is rather the reality itself. It is what we have presented to us in Scripture that God has done. He has substituted someone for us to take the penalty that we deserve. We've seen that in the last two studies from the books of Moses. Now, this morning, today, we go from the Pentateuch in the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, where we've been, as I say, these last two weeks, we go several hundred years on. We go by Joshua. We go by David and Solomon. The kingdom of Israel is, is founded and flourishes and divides and declines. And we come this morning to the prophet Isaiah. And we find something very interesting as we read through Isaiah. It becomes clear that God's great plan for his people and for his world seems to turn on a person. There was an innate sense of this even in the way God's people would look to an idolized figure or to a king in their history. But God revealed to Isaiah that a Messiah king would come. Now really, all of the kings of Israel and Judah were Messiahs in the sense that they were anointed, which is what the word means. But there would be one to end all the others. So we read in Isaiah 32, a king a king will reign in righteousness, and rulers will rule with justice. There would be a king coming of whom David was only a preview. And yet as we read this prophecy, we get the sense that this will be more than just a good king. There's a famous passage in Isaiah 9 that we've been hearing a lot around Christmas. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So the Lord tells his people through Isaiah that a king would come. But he also tells us that a servant would come. God seems to specially call this one my servant. Now, if this servant is exalted, could this servant also be this king? Could they be one and the same? Throughout all of this prophecy and prediction about God's provision, the question crying out is basically this. How will a holy God Restore or give sinners. And that question is answered in the famous passage that we come to this morning. What one writer has called the, the jewel and the crown of Isaiah's theology. Isaiah 52 verse 13 through 53 12. Often known as the song of the suffering servant or the song about the suffering servant. If you're looking at the Bibles provided in the West Hall, you'll find it on page 731. Page 731. If you're looking at the Bibles provided here in the main hall, you'll find it on page 772. Isaiah 52, verse 13. These chapter descriptions, uh, these chapter divisions were done centuries later. They didn't always get it right. This time I think they didn't get it right. That's why we're taking the passages like this. This is a song of five stanzas, three verses each. We're looking at the whole song, beginning with 52, verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. 
He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Friends, even atheistic scholars who look at this passage and who study it tell us that Jesus' contribution, if I can put it that way, Jesus' contribution to theology was his combining of his teaching of the coming Messiah King with this teaching of the suffering servant here in Isaiah. That it was Jesus who, as far as we can tell from history, was the first one to teach that these two were the same figure. This is what he taught his disciples. Jesus clearly knew and relied on this song to understand and to explain his own ministry. Matthew, in Matthew 8, quotes this verse here in Isaiah 53, verse 4, to explain Jesus' exorcisms and healings. He clearly applied the servant passage to Jesus because he had learned that from Jesus. The servant that is presented here is not what we would normally think of as a servant, certainly not the kind of important servants that we see at, at Windsor Castle. Now, the kind of servant that we have here is appalling. We find that we have actually despised him, that God laid our sins on him, that this servant accepted his substitutionary suffering, and that the servant would be satisfied. Those are the five stanzas, if you will, of this servant song here in Isaiah. We'll look at them in order. And as I do, I pray that you'll be helped to find this servant if you don't know him and to love this one even better if you do. We begin by looking at the first stanza and there encountering this servant. And we see, as I say, number one, this servant is appalling. This servant is appalling. The song introduced in verse 13 with a summary here, see, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. So God's servant will act wisely, we learn, and be exalted. And the language here for highly exalted is used elsewhere in the Bible only of God himself. So from the very beginning, the careful reader has some things that surprise and shock and maybe he doesn't understand. There's something unique about this servant's nature and his fate. The servant is going to do something, and God will exalt him uniquely. But then in verse 14, the song turns strangely dark. 
we learn that there are many that were shocked. Prophecy, you'll note, is often expressed in the past tense to show the certainty of its fulfillment. There are many that were shocked by the servant's appearance. Look at verse 14. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness, so will he sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see and what they have not heard they will understand. This surprising message is about the suffering servant who will prepare the world to worship God. The servant is described as appalling, disfigured, marred. Reference is fulfilled, I think, not, um, not uh, about a sort of native deformity of Jesus Christ from birth, but really fulfilled in the horror of his crucifixion. And it is this horror connected with the servant that makes the effect that he has here so surprising. In verse 15, that mentions the sprinkling of many nations. That's referring to the Old Testament practice of making something ceremonially clean by sprinkling it. And this is the image that Isaiah uses here to speak about how many others will be prepared to be admitted to the worship of God. The servant, by means of this message about him, will have not just a ministry for Israel, but an international ministry. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. I think that's what I meant Gentiles. Those who were not studying the Old Testament Scriptures, those who had not been prepared in that fashion, but even the Gentiles would hear and see and believe. You know, Robert Bella a few years ago referred to the religious eclecticism he found in his studies of popular beliefs as Sheilaism. He named it after Sheila, who was not a real person. He made Sheila up. She was kind of a composite of the interviews he had done with hundreds of Americans about their beliefs. And what he found is that uh, Americans increasingly would simply pick beliefs that they liked. Inconsistent with each other, perhaps. No particular religious tradition could describe it, yes. So he came up with this word of Sheilaism, for Americans' kind of pick-and-choose way of coming up with their own religious beliefs, this eclecticism. Well, friend, if, if you're not a Christian and you would think of sort of your own religion, perhaps as you have or would construct it, I wonder how you would construct your sort of hero, savior, religious leader, teacher figure. I wonder what that one would be like. It probably wouldn't be like the servant in this song. But Christ came as a servant. And what about you, my Christian friend? Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. He came to give salvation to the world. And as his self-styled followers, what do we do? Do we order our lives to that same end? Or do we exalt ourselves around family and friends at work? Are we willing to risk our carefully cultivated reputations in order to tell others about Christ? This may not seem like the most obvious application of this passage at first. But in Romans 15, that Michael read for us earlier, you'll know that Paul, when he explains his own ambition to take the gospel where it had never gone before, he quotes this verse. He says, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation, rather as it is written. And then he quotes the song. Those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. 
Paul longed to join in the servant's work of taking the message places where it had not been heard. That was his desire. He puts it his ambition. But what about you? Have you considered how you are helping in that task? Have you considered how you are ordering your life, making decisions as you have opportunity to make decisions about where you will live, what you will do, who you will befriend, what you will put your time and resources into? Have you thought about how you are joining into this task? As a church, we are committed to trying to proclaim the gospel to those who've never heard it. So if you join our congregation, you'll find that we stress work in certain places and not work elsewhere. Not work where we judge the gospel to already be available. We would rather put our limited time and resources into those places that we think Jesus has not been heard of. The gospel has not been told much. And though those are more difficult places to go and to reach, we as a congregation are committed to trying to go to those places and to reach those people. Anyway, we begin this song with the surprising, even shocking news of the servant's disfigurement. The camera, if you will, is squarely on the servant. And then further on the surprise of his mission to the nations. But we should move on to the next stanza. Not only do we find that the servant is appalling, but we find in the next stanza of the song, we appear. This is point two. We despised the servant. We despised the servant. Now, the nation of Israel seems to speak and we find the message that the Gentiles, the nations will come to understand is a message about God's salvation of his people. And the question is, it is so extraordinary, so unexpected. Who will believe it? Verse 1, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's, it's shocking both in its means, this disfigured servant, and in its ends, the whole world. This question implies unbelief. That is, that the message strikes many as incredible. So in John's Gospel, John in chapter 12 tells us even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. And then he quotes this verse, Isaiah 53.1. Paul too turns when he's uh, to this verse to show the widespread rejection of the message among his fellow Jews. Paul says in Romans 10.16, But not all the Israelites accepted the good news, for Isaiah says... Lord, who has believed our message? Now, why is this message so incredible? Because, as Isaiah has already begun telling us, the servant will not be, humanly speaking, very marketable. The servant will not be the kind of person that you want to go up to at a party and stand and talk to. Look at verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Have you ever noticed how telegenic those religious teachers and preachers are that seem to succeed on TV? These verses let us know that the servant, the servant would look different than the actors that turn up in the movies to play Jesus or Superman. The servant will be unexpected and unattractive. In that sense, Isaiah here is reinforcing what he told us in the first stanza. 
But have you noticed how we have kind of entered the story here? Verse 2. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And in verse 3, it's even clearer that the servant will be despised. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The song begins to implicate us in the guilt of not valuing God's servant, of considering him of no account. He looked miserable to those who saw him, though glorious in the minds of those who knew him. I wonder if you think, you know, I'm, I'm just here at this church service because my friend asked me to come and you know, I'm not a Christian. I, I don't have anything against Jesus. He seems like a fine guy. I'm just not particularly interested. Friend, Jesus didn't have any independent category. You've got to choose. Jesus taught, if you are not for me, you are against me. As this song goes on, the identification of this servant with Jesus Christ becomes even more clear. Jesus Christ is the despised servant. Friends, are we, his disciples, surprised when we are despised? When we are rejected for being Christians among family or friends or at work? How do we cultivate in our own souls and our children's hearts this idea that our main responsibility is faithfulness, not to someone else, not to the crowd, not even to ourselves, but to God? Praise God that he has revealed himself to us and grown in us a desire for him We would not have it natively. This makes that very clear. He has been good to us. He has been kind to us. He clearly picked us, or we would never pick him. We didn't esteem Jesus. We looked down on him and spurned him. How many times have I had non-Christian friends tell me that, you know, Mark, if if I knew him, then maybe I could believe. Then I would believe. If I only I could have known him. Been there when he was there. Well, friends, that's not the evidence we have from the time, from the people who were there and did know him. No, we see in the New Testament that Jesus was despised. People avoided him. They hid their faces from him. They passed him by. They they turned away from him. And if we know the truth about ourselves, we know that this has been our response as well. Friends, this is why we as a congregation, we're not going to add worldly attractions to make this gospel seem pretty. Uh, We're not going to do anything artificially to try to get you interested. We want to be honest about ourselves and our own sins. And part of the message we've been called to bring is to call us to honestly confess our sins. And, you know, you can hardly engage in calling people to confess their sins and flatter them at the same time. So we as a congregation are trying to be faithful to honestly telling people, you've sinned, you need a Savior. This prophecy has come true. We have despised this servant. It's in this song's third stanza that we find perhaps the longest meditation in the whole Bible about how God deals with our sins. Isn't it wonderful to have a practice as a congregation of having our first Lord's Day morning together every year start around the Lord's Supper? to remind us, to proclaim to us again 
the Lord's death. And in God's kind providence, I promise more than in my planning, that we should be studying this passage, the first Lord's Day of this year. We find here in this stanza that the images used here don't have to do with with money or slavery or honor or even, even love. We find that God's Spirit has inspired the language of a deserved penalty to be paid and of someone who has paid it for us. Some have suggested that Christ took of our infirmities in the sense that he was incarnate and he joined us in our sufferings. They want to avoid the language of penalty and punishment. But friend, to join is not the same thing as to help, let alone to heal or bring forgiveness for our sins or peace with God. For one to suffer who deserves to suffer is unadorned justice, but it brings no redemption. One of the earliest sort of post-New Testament Christian expressions about Christ's atonement comes from Clement of Rome. He said, Because of the love he had for us, Jesus Christ our Lord, in accordance with God's will, gave his blood for us, and his flesh for our flesh, and his life for our lives. And that's what we see in this central climactic stanza of the servant song. In the first stanza, we've seen the servant. In the second stanza, we've begun to see ourselves in the servant's affliction. And now, in the third, we have the most surprising turn of all. In these verses, we have the answer to the riddle of the Old Testament. How a holy God can forgive sinners. How mercy and justice can meet. How a righteous God, as Paul put it, could justify the ungodly. Look through this whole song and see the words that describe the servant and his life. Appalled, appearance disfigured, marred beyond human likeness. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. No beauty or majesty, nothing in his appearance. He is despised, rejected, man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, despised, we esteemed him not, stricken, smitten, and afflicted, pierced, crushed, punishment, wounds, oppressed, afflicted, led like a lamb to the slaughter, oppression, judgment, cut off, stricken, assigned a grave with the wicked, crush, suffer, suffering, poured out his life unto death, numbered with the transgressors. Why? Why such anguish? Because number three, God laid our sins on the servant. We see clearly here that the servant bore our infirmities. Verse 4, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. What an amazing statement. Note, God struck him. God smote him. And Isaiah says that we would notice that. We would consider him stricken by God. Oh, this one must be smitten by him. Yes, true, but it wasn't because he deserved it. It wasn't because he deserved it. 
You see, in verse 3, we see that he was a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Yes, and God did this. We see in verse 4, but not because he deserved it, but because we have. And, And though there are some verbs that are passive in all this, showing that God did this, others are active, showing the servant himself acted to take upon himself our suffering and to carry our sorrows. He may in some sense be a victim, but he is no mere victim. This was his action. We'll see down in verse 12, he poured out his life. He bore the sin of many. Now, do you see this amazing combination, God's will and the servant's willingness? This is no cosmic child abuse of a heavenly father gone terribly wrong toward his trembling child who shrinks back from his strokes. This is the eternal triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, determining from eternity past how he would deal with our sins and doing it. And what we see here in verse 5 is really the climax of the song. The suffering servant brought us salvation. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. What a picture. I don't know about you, but when I read this, so many things rush into my thoughts. I think of Genesis where the offspring of the woman, would, the Lord told her, would crush the serpent. And here we see the servant, Jesus, being crushed so that by his death he might destroy death. And why would we need to be so delivered? Well, because of our sins. That's what he says here in verse 6 very clearly. We have sinned, and yet God laid our sins on the servant. Verse 6, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Israelites had been taught for hundreds of years since the time of Moses on their two great national holidays about God's holiness and their sin and their need for a God-appointed substitute. They were taught this at Passover, and they were taught this on the Day of Atonement. Once in the spring, every spring they were taught this. And once in the fall, every fall they were taught this. God, for centuries, was drilling this into their minds, that he was holy, that they were not, that they needed a substitute he would appoint to approach him. You see how he prepared a people for the coming of the servant. Now, however, they see that, that the substitute is the servant, this God-appointed person. This is what people had not been told and had not before heard. The servant is substituted for the sheep. The servant is slaughtered so that the sheep, you and me, are saved. We've observed before the the strangeness to us often of this image of sheep. If you've never lived in the country, you've never lived around sheep, it seems like a a fine thing. They're clean animals. They're, They're little squishy things you give to your kids, sort of stuffed versions of But if you've been in the country or you've lived in England or Wales where there's so many sheep, you realize that sheep are dumb and dirty. You know, they're not, it's not a complimentary image when you get called, oh, like a little sheep. No, it means that you're helpless, that you you will kill yourself, you know, without even intending to. That you you just, you're you're not, you're not a competent creature. And you're a dirty creature and you're kind of ornery. You're quietish, but you're kind of ornery. It's, It's not a complimentary image. 
And yet this, the sheep, we've gone astray. All of us. We're not represented as some great, proud animal, very competent and to be feared. Though I fear that's the way many religious teachers around Washington this morning are telling their congregations they should think of themselves. That's not the truth according to the Bible. I don't care who is flattering you, they're lying to you. According to the Bible, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We need someone to save us even from our own sins that we have committed. My friend, if you're not a Christian, two challenges for you. Number one, you have sinned. And you are responsible before God for your actions, for your life, for what you've done. You will give account to him for every sin you ever have or will commit. Number two, someone else has suffered for your sins, has paid the penalty for them, if you will only trust the claims of Christ that he's done this and turn from your sins to follow him. God made us all in his image to know and love him. And yet we have all, like sheep, gone astray. We have sinned against him. And he would be completely just to allow us to go our own way. But in his mercy and love, he has not. He has found a way where mercy and justice can act together. And that's in the eternal Son of God being made flesh, living a perfect life among us, the life you and I should have lived. And then dying a death, he didn't have to die. He would not sinned, but dying the death that we deserve in order to bear, like this servant here, our iniquities, our transgressions, our acts that we have done that are wrong, to bear God's correct and right penalty against them. And God raised him from the dead and highly exalted him to show that he accepted this sacrifice, that all of Jesus' teaching was true. And he invites us now to turn from our sins and to trust in Jesus Christ. Friend, the answer to the guilt that you experience is not to explain it away by all the circumstances exterior to you that have victimized you. But rather, it is to call you to own your own sins fully as your own sins. And then to entrust them to Jesus Christ fully, who has died on the cross for sinners. My brothers and sisters, you realize that All your disobedience is not ultimately disobedience to some other person or to yourself. It is disobedience to God. Your sins will never be taken care of any other way. Not by success in your marriage or family, your friendships or your work. Christ alone is the way God is appointed to bear our sins. He died for us. It was our sins that put him there. Consider what God did here. Remind yourself of his sovereignty in all this, and return to the cross daily. Meditate on this passage. Consider what the Son of God has done on your behalf, for you. These verses are what our church is all about. We intend to be, we pray to be, a community of sinners, all of whom God has forgiven through this servant, his Son, Jesus Christ. Let's go on now to the fourth stanza of this most amazing song. And in this stanza, we see emphasized the servant's own cooperation in this work. Number four, the servant accepted his substitutionary death. The servant accepted his substitutionary death. 
We see in verse 7 that though the servant was oppressed, he did not cry out. Did you see that? Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Consider here the servant's humble acceptance of his role. He was quiet. He allowed himself to be brought like a lamb to death. I mean, can't you just see Jesus in Pilate's hall? Remember him in the garden a little before when he tells his disciple to put the sword away? There won't be any of that. He was like a sheep shorn. He chose not to open his mouth to dispute, to denounce, to prevent. Jesus Christ accepted this because it was God's plan. We see here in verse 8 that the servant was killed because of the sins of the people. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. You know, in God's amazing providence recorded in Acts 8, it was these very verses that the Ethiopian official just happened to be reading as he was going from Jerusalem to return back to Ethiopia, and the Holy Spirit brought Philip to him. And do you remember what he asked Philip? He said, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And then back in Isaiah 53, verse 9, we see yet another prophecy, which was fulfilled in Jesus' life and death, that without sin himself the servant died, and was buried. Look at verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. His death could be regarded ambiguously. He died with criminals, buried with the wealthy. But as we find out more about the life and death of the servant, verse 9 makes it clear that this servant had done no violence. That is, his suffering, his suffering was not caused by his own sin. He had no wickedness, no injustice to account for himself. As it says down in verse 11, he was righteous. He was different from what we all confess about ourselves in verse 6. And if you remember the account of Jesus' trial, even Pilate himself testifies to Jesus' innocence. It was as if he had read the prophecy of Isaiah and was following the script. As Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, he committed no sin. And no deceit was found in his mouth. And yet Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, was slain for our salvation. Some have thought that Jesus' example of non-resistance here should be a model for Christians to never resist injustice themselves. But I think this is a misreading of the importance of the text here. Jesus is certainly an example for us. But he was also undertaking the unique work of salvation. There are many callings in life which we have in which we should exercise authority, even to correct, even to punish. We know this in our homes. We know this in our jobs. But if this doesn't teach us that we should always practice non-resistance, it does teach us that we should always be humble. If we oppose our own abuse, it is out of a humble trust in God's plan that this is against his will and that we would love him even in the way we love those who are made in his image and oppose abuse and injustice. My brothers and sisters, don't retaliate for wrongs done against yourself. Yes, if you can prevent them, prevent them. If you have questions about whether or not you're in an abusive situation, please speak to one of the elders in the church. Let us help you. 
But follow the example of Christ here. If this righteous one was so humble, surely we should be even more humble. Do you know how righteous you feel sometimes? Or maybe I'm the only one. Let me put it this way. I feel so righteous sometimes when I forgive somebody else, when they've done something wrong against me. I feel like I I have this great bank account of moral credit, and I've just inflated it still further. How false is that? I am a debtor to God's mercy alone. When I act, even in the greatest act of forgiveness towards somebody else, I have done so little compared to what God has done to me in Christ. Brothers and sisters, when we act out this kind of love that we see in the servant, in Jesus Christ, we act not out of a great store of virtue and merit that we have, but we act because we know how much more greatly God has forgiven us and has been so kind in mercy to us. Because we want our lives to reflect the humility of the servant who accepted his special substitutionary suffering out of his love for us, for his own glory. We want to have that kind of life among ourselves of forgiveness. The last stanza still has one surprise left for us, although it was indicated in the very first verse of our passage. Number five. The servant will be satisfied. The servant will be satisfied. We find in this last stanza of the song that it was the Lord's will to crush the servant and yet to cause him to prosper. We see this in verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Now, to understand this, you need to understand that most of the offerings offered in the Old Testament weren't really all consumed by flame. They were usually killed and and eaten, and it was considered an offering. The guilt offering was the one big exception. The guilt offering would be wholly consumed. It was the only sacrificial suffering which was intended to atone for sin. There was a, a symbolism in that. Well, here the servant's death is presented as such an atoning sacrifice. And that sacrifice is how we as Christians understand Jesus' death. And in fact, many of the passages that we hope in this series to study in the New Testament will explain this even more. But the suffering servant will justify many and be satisfied. Look at verse 11. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Servant's knowledge referred to here is his wisdom, shown not only in his own relationship with God, but in his bringing other people into relationship with God. That's what the Bible calls wise. It's not a PhD. It's not having a certain position. It's not being an expert in this field. It's knowing God yourself and bringing others to know God. That's the essence of wisdom in Scripture. Well, that's the servant's knowledge. As Paul writes in Romans 5, For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. We noted in verse 11 that the servant's death was a guilt offering, but it was, it was a new kind of guilt offering because this servant will both be wholly consumed, as guilt offerings were, and yet will be satisfied after his suffering. Now how could that be? He would be wholly consumed as a guilt offering, and yet 
he would know satisfaction after his suffering. How do you work that out? Remember back in the first verse of our passage? 52 verse 13. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. The last verse summarizes the song, concluding that because the servant bore the sin of many, God would reward him. Look at verse 12. 53 verse 12. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The servant would be an atoning penal substitute for the people whose sins he bore. And remember the background of this. We saw in Leviticus 16 last week, there is one who bore our sins. Those animals we considered last week were signals and signs pointing forward to the one who would truly bear our sins, as Isaiah says here, the servant would do. And John the Baptist recognized Jesus as this one. When he saw Jesus, do you remember what John the Baptist first said? He saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist saw that here was coming the servant who would bear away our sins. And not just the sins of those in Israel, but those from any nation who would turn from their sins and trust in this Lamb instead of trying to defend their own record before God. And at the Last Supper, Jesus quoted this phrase, numbered with the transgressors. He said, this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. And part of what would be fulfilled in this prophecy was that God would reward him. The servant's life here can be summarized as suffering, then glory. Suffering, then glory. Back in terms of the first verse, Acts 50, uh, Isaiah 52, verse 13. Act wisely, and then highly exalted. Verse 11 here uses this interesting language of being satisfied. It says, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. The servant who has suffered will come to know joy. He will enjoy the fact that many have been justified. Many whose sins have been borne. Again, the key passage really here that we see is an explanation of substitution. And yet it doesn't present the servant as someone who is abused by the Lord, but as one who shares the will of the Lord. The Lord's will is His will. The Lord's plan is His plan. The Lord's joy is His joy. He is satisfied. My friend, if you're not a Christian, I just want to point out that all the good things that this prophecy say come to the servant will only come after he poured out his life unto death. This chapter presumes the resurrection from the dead of the servant. Now, if you're considering Christianity, let me encourage you to look at that. Investigate the resurrection. You can find stuff on the bookstall here at the back that could help you. You can listen to things on our website, lectures, talks, sermons that we've had. I'll be standing at the door over there. I would happily talk to you about it. If you want to understand who this servant is, you must grapple with this idea that we Christians actually believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. That's how he fulfills this prophecy. The wonderful news of this chapter is not only that we will be forgiven, but Jesus Christ will be satisfied in it. 
we will have accomplished what he's called us to do because he will have accomplished his end, his purpose, and all of his actions connected to it, his goal. He's not waiting to be satisfied by what you do or by how you act in this or that situation. Brothers and sisters, the glorious news is is that he is satisfied because of what he has done. We are not laboring under the hope that somehow we may finally satisfy this this unbending, merciless God. Now, that's not the picture in the Bible at all. No, he is satisfied based upon what he has done. So our ultimate satisfaction shouldn't be found in, in marriage or family or friends or work, but in God himself. Friend, if you're here this morning and if, if you struggle with the thought of, of God loving you, consider the Savior's work here. Consider what he's done. Consider the joy that he finds in having fully satisfied himself with his own sacrifice. His justice and his love's claims are met fully. The cross is no contradiction to God's justice, and it is the pinnacle of his love for us. What greater thing could he do to show that he loves you? This is why, for your own sake and for the sake of this congregation, you must labor to always be clear on believing and expressing and guarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our satisfaction in our own congregation shouldn't come at improving facilities or growing budgets or larger congregations but in Christ and in the gospel and in the hope of eternity with him. This last stanza makes it clear that this suffering servant will be satisfied. Friends, if you are spending your Christian life right now looking for those sweet little circumstances that will give you your satisfaction, I'm telling you in love this morning, abandon that search. The last circumstance lied to you. The one that's just over the horizon is lying to you also. The satisfaction you will find, if you find it, will be in Christ. Pray God help you to be satisfied in Christ, even as Christ himself is satisfied in his action. This wonderful passage in Isaiah is, as you can imagine, especially controversial in the Jewish community. In the public reading through the scriptures in many synagogues, this passage is left out. They will literally, in their lectionary readings through the prophets, they will read up to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 12. And then the next Sabbath day, they will pick it up with Isaiah 54, verse 1. Why? Well, because it's too easily misunderstood, it's suggested. It is simply too often and for too long led people to think that Isaiah prophesied the coming of Jesus Christ to die as substitute, bearing the penalty for the sins of many. This is what Christians have always understood Isaiah to mean here, because Jesus taught us that's what it means. It's an idea that's both ancient and modern. Words from antiquity can sound like words from your meditations in your own quiet time this morning. So united are Christians in our understanding of this. Here's what one early Christian said. Oh, the surpassing kindness and love of God. He didn't hate us or reject us or bear a grudge against us. Instead, he was patient and forbearing. In his mercy, he took upon himself our sins. 
He himself gave up his own son as a ransom for us, the holy one for the lawless, the guiltless for the guilty, the just for the unjust, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. Well, what else but his righteousness could have covered our sins? In whom was it possible for us, the lawless and ungodly, to be justified except in the Son of God alone? Oh, sweet exchange! Oh, the incomprehensible work of God! Oh, the unexpected blessings that the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous man, while the righteousness of one should justify many sinners. All throughout this study, I've called this a song. That's what the commentators call it. There's one more passage in Isaiah that most commentators say is the last of these servant songs in Isaiah. It's Isaiah chapter 61, which begins, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Friends, this is the servant speaking again. The one who would be satisfied in the salvation he brings. In 61, there in verse 3, he tells us that those whom he saves will be called oaks of righteousness. A planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Now friends, with all this in mind about the servant songs... Consider, when Jesus began his earthly ministry, we read in Luke 4, he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, And sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Think of everything that went through his mind when he said that. He knew what it meant. He knew the life of the servant. Did he swallow hard before he said that sentence? Was this a preview of the Garden of Gethsemane? Kind of, let it begin. And if you will turn from your sins and trust in him, he did it all. All that he did in this for you. Let's pray together.
Lord, we confess that our hearts are often cold and merciless, where we look here in your word and we find that you are full of pity. Lord, we find that you, we are self-concerned and that you will give yourself in love for us. We find that we are weak and feeble, even in those things we attempt to do, and that you, having all power, will bend it for our blessing, even at your own cost. Oh God, accept our words, our lives, our very selves as a response of thanks and love. In Jesus' name, amen.